Before we get started, this episode of the Food Grower Podcast is sponsored by Natural Grower. Natural Grower's award-winning liquid fertilizer, plant feed, and soil conditioner is made entirely from maize. It's naturally rich in nitrogen, potash, phosphate, and other trace elements that plants and vegetables love. And it's approved by the Soil Association, Vegan Society, and Biodynamic Association. The concentrated natural fertilizer can be poured around the base of plants, whilst the plant feed and soil conditioner can be mixed into the soil or used as a mulch on the surface as a long-term, slow-release fertilizer on all outdoor and indoor plants. Both Jack and I have been using the natural grower products this year and have seen amazing results, and we have a fantastic 15% off the entire natural grower range for you. Simply go to naturalgrower.co.uk and enter foodgrower15 at checkout. This episode is also brought to you by Direct Plants Limited, and specifically their amazing range of polytunnels. We use these strong and affordable tunnels on both Jack's Patch and Fanfield Farm, and we love them. Direct Plants manufacture the tunnels themselves so that you can buy your polytunnel direct from the manufacturer, and not just any manufacturer, but from growers too, so that they really understand what you need. These traditional high-quality polytunnels are available in a range of sizes to fit your growing needs, and they're manufactured here in the UK in Norfolk. We're delighted to bring you a brilliant 10% off the entire range at directplants.co.uk. Simply head over there and use the code FOODGROWER at checkout. That's FOODGROWER, all one word, no spaces, at directplants.co.uk. Welcome to the Food Grower Podcast, the podcast that tells the story, highlights the techniques and talks tactics with food growers from all around the world. From market gardeners to allotment holders, field farmers to urban farmers, we want this podcast to inspire you to grow food or help you on your already existing food empire. I'm Chris from Fanfield Farm. I'm Jack from Jack's Patch. And it's my pleasure to introduce our guest today, Elizabeth Kaus. How's your week been? Hey, it's been good. Very busy. I have quite a few changes in my life, so it's been good but busy. Yeah, it, lo- it looks so awesome. Like we're lucky on video to see the cafe behind you. Um, but we always like to start a podcast of getting to know you. So, can you tell us a bit about yourself and then what you do? Yeah, for sure. So I'm Elizabeth. I'm from upstate New York, and I am a passionate environmentalist and farmer, um, an environmental activist. And for most of my young career, I've been pretty focused in the farming and agriculture and permaculture worlds, um, and still am. And very recently, I've actually opened a cafe and community space in the town that I live in, um, in the Caribbean coast of Costa Rica. So in a lot of ways, that's merging a lot of my interests in local food and solidarity economy and food justice and community building and kind of bringing together local farmers and people. And that's kind of my newest venture. So, yeah. That's awesome. How different has it been growing in and doing things in Costa Rica to, to where you were before? Um, Yeah, it's the tropics are crazy. It's very different, but I'd say most of my experience has been in the tropics. I came to Costa Rica at first when I was 17 um, and have spent time in in Puerto Rico and and the tropics in Australia as well. So I I definitely love the tropics and it's it's my preferred um, climate and ecosystem. But of course, the patterns in nature are the same everywhere, but it's definitely a a whole different ballgame here. 
Well, like that, that's that's what I love, Liz, because we've met in the UK, and um, I think it's it, it's really cool to see that you've travelled and then you've kind of you've gone back to Costa Rica, and then recently you've uh, opened a restaurant. Um, let's talk about that and then how it came to be. So, like I said, for the last like six or seven years, I've been really like on the ground farming. Um, growing food, working with, with the dirt or with the soil and landscapes and with people. And I love it. And that's still definitely like a part of who I am and a big part of my life. But I think I got to a place where I was helping to facilitate a lot of permaculture courses. And there's such a big emphasis on self-sufficiency and growing food, which I think is amazing. But I, to me, it felt really individualistic sometimes. Like, almost kind of like a, a prepper, like the world's gonna end, grow all your own food for yourself and you know, who cares about anyone else, like do what you need. I'm sure obviously not everyone thinks that, but it started to feel like that. And I have so many friends and just people in my life who wanna contribute to, you know, creating a better world and a more sustainable world, but they're not necessarily gonna dedicate their lives to growing all their own food or being off grid. And I think that's okay. Like I have friends who love to do art or music or work in the government or politics or doing really like awesome stuff and they're not they don't have the time to be growing all their own food so kind of thinking about the impact that I was having and for me I think both environmentalism and growing food has always been about people and social justice and how can we make people's lives in our own communities better um, so specifically in the community that I was living in, I just feel like there's so much abundance here in the tropics of produce um, and of beautiful plants and fruits. And yet so many people are still just eating, you know, what they're used to, whether it's Costa Ricans or foreigners. Um, most people are still eating rice and beans and tomatoes and broccoli and cabbage and, and all temperate climate foods or foods that are imported. Um, from outside of here, which I think is crazy because there there are just so many beautiful foods here. Um, so really just wanting to connect people with that, like a, our menu is, is really like local and farm to table to a new level. Like we really only use local starches and perennial greens and just really unique um, food that I don't think a lot of other restaurants or places are offering in the tropics. And we're really just trying to inspire people to yeah, buy local, grow their own, um, have a local diet. And it's been amazing so far. We've been open for one month and the feedback we've gotten is, is so great. And everyone's always so curious and asking so many questions about how we make our food. Like we have two different dishes where we cook with banana peels, um, which are actually mm. like a really amazing thing to eat that most people don't know about, but everyone's just always asking about how to make it. So we really hope that people kind of see what we're doing in our recipes and are inspired to go home and, and do some of the same themselves. I, I like the connection yeah. between what you said with how locals were eating as well as foreigners. We get used to like going away and then uh, people still eat <laughs> McDonald's when they're abroad and you just think, no, eat the local cuisine. And what I loved about Costa Rica is the it's pretty much this superfood growing everywhere and it's you, you just need to be like well just eat that <laughs> um and it's also having that availability so i've probably said this story in the podcast before but when um when i was there um i remember a guy trying to get me to come into his restaurant oh, i think it was a bar so he just he assumed i was american when i said i was from the uk he said oh my god you're from the land of carrots and for, for, 
for them to for him to say that made me it just made me click that he said how great carrots were but they can't grow them in costa rica and um, but they import them for and they're expensive mm-hmm. and it made me question like you're you've got papaya mangoes moringa grown everywhere that's that's a superfood but it's funny how we have this local food that's cheap and we assume it's not as good for us as it as it is just because someone else finds it expensive elsewhere it, we, we, we're surrounded by good food like here in the uk there in costa rica and it's about showing people this is your local diet this is native food this is what you should be eating yeah definitely what are some of those i haven't never been to costa rica so for anyone listening who hasn't what are some of those staple foods that are so different to here i mean we had elki on a previous episode and he talked about eating cactus because that's really native to to him in a mexican mexico and and we were blown away i had no idea you could eat cactus what are some of those staple foods that you're using there banana peel sounds amazing (laughs) sure so a lot of our kind of staple calorie crops or starches would be yuca or cassava um, breadfruit, which is a really amazing plant. It's like a, a potato that grows on trees. And because mm-hmm. it's a perennial, it's really good for the soil, but it, it acts as a carbohydrate. Um, plantain, of course. Um, and then I'm like really passionate about and love perennial greens. So we use chaya, katuk, ballet, a lot of different spinaches, um, and just really amazing, like, it's really hard to grow lettuce here. Lettuce is another thing that really thrives in a more temperate climate. Um, so instead, we, we use all of these um, tropically native greens that are really amazing for you and just grow so well here. Awesome. They all sound great. Course, huh? like, yeah. I, I definitely want to link it back to our permaculture course because we, we both done the same permaculture course at separate times. And luckily, we've met through that being alumni from uh, Finca Tierra. Um, just elaborate about the course me and you done there and so we can encourage other people to do it. Yeah, for sure. So um, yeah, Jack and I both did the PDC at a place called Finca Tierra, which is a permaculture education center here in the Caribbean and Costa Rica. And that was the first course that I had ever done or participated in. And since then, I have um, participated in a lot of others. And I can very confidently say that Ana and Ian's is definitely one of the best in the world. It's, it's really special and really intentional and thoughtful. Um, but basically, they, they really do things on a homestead scale. So they're um, a family who really just... Uh, they were both young activists as well. She was a lawyer and he was an artist and they were just noticing like all these messed up systems that aren't serving most people in the world. And they were like, what are we going to do about this? And they kind of um, started to learn about permaculture and off-grid living and just providing for yourself and for your community. And they really just learned it all by themselves. Like this was before... I mean, they had internet then, but at the property where they're at, like they didn't even have electricity or internet or cell phones and they were cooking over a fire and really just learning by doing. Um, And they were pretty amazed that within a few years, they were almost self-sufficient and they were really successfully growing majority of their own food and had this really beautiful lifestyle where they just went to the beach and gardened and were doing their thing. And they were they were kind of like, how doesn't everyone know about this? Um, so they started to offer courses and um, experiential stays, and that now that's what they do full time. 
And that course, I mean, it, it totally changed my life. And I think I ended up working at Finca Tierra for one year after I did the course. And seeing so many people come through, I think, like, transformative is definitely a word that I think of. It's just, to me, they just show all the possibilities and how this lifestyle, I think a lot of people can romanticize permaculture and living off-grid and growing food. And the reality is, like, it's hard work. And a lot of it um, can be uncomfortable from the lives that we've all grown up with. But... Anna and Ian, I think, really show it in this beautiful way that it can be done pretty, like, easily without too much fuss, and you can just have a, a really beautiful lifestyle that way. And, yeah, they're such a huge inspiration to me and two of my greatest mentors, so very, very thankful to them. Yeah, they're, they're two amazing people, and they really got the balance right for anyone on the course that if you are coming from a temperate climate, that you're going to cover it, even though you're in an exotic environment. I really felt like they got the balance right. Um, and it's like Charlie and the Chocolates Factory, but plant-based yeah. version. 90% of it was edible, if not medicinal. Um, mm -hmm. Everything was close to surrounded the kitchen. The kitchen was the main focus for me of the farm. It's just where you learn, where you eat. Um, really beautiful place. And I do encourage anyone to do yeah, that, sure. that course. I think a big part of the permaculture course too is like connecting with others because any, I mean, anyone can buy a permaculture course and learn a lot of them, the main principles and, and design systems, but such a big part of it is the community building and meeting other people who also want to live that kind of lifestyle and are inspired to do it. And I think that brings a lot of people hope as well. And it's like a really important part of it. Is that something you said you think you've gained the most from the farm? What would you say is like the most uh, thing? Yeah. What, what have you gained most from Finca Tierra? Um, I mean, yeah, definitely amazing connections like all over the world for sure. But I think, like I said, for me, just seeing, seeing it in action, like two people who are really doing this and thriving while doing it is definitely a huge inspiration. Because um, if you're, you know, I grew up in a suburban environment, shopping at the grocery store, not knowing anything about my food. Um, and I think it can be pretty daunting if you don't know it all. So then you hear about this and it sounds amazing, but it might seem really far out of reach and they just make it really accessible. So yeah, they've just been a huge inspiration in that way. And, and now I live here. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. obviously have been a huge um, factor in that too. I think there's something really powerful you said there. And I think that's some lessons that we've taken. We've talked about this on the podcast before. We talk a lot about regenerative agriculture, but there's a part of that that we've sort of learned from permaculture this year is about the people and, and, and yourself as well. So looking at that word regenerative and, and meaning that that is actually about the person farming, about the people that are here. That's something we often very quickly forget when it's the middle of the summer and and it's difficult and you've got 100 jobs to do but i think that's something really important and a lesson that can be taken from permaculture yeah definitely the so i helped at the beginning of last year to found an organization called liberation permaculture <laughs> and it's, it's all about kind of emphasizing the people care aspect of permaculture that i think can often get overlooked um and a huge pattern I've been seeing, especially just in Costa Rica, is so many people coming here, specifically foreigners, and again, wanting to live off-grid and do all this stuff and not really integrating into the community they're in at all. Um, and I just think that disconnect is like, if we're trying to mimic nature, like 
that integration has to be like first and the community and people care is one of the most important things. Um, so that's, yeah, always been a, a huge part of my interest in permaculture, the fact that it is so intersectional in that way. And you did a, a TEDx talk on that, didn't you? Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about it? Yeah, so that talk was a little bit about how I kind of got into the permaculture world and then finding my place in it more around social permaculture and that being my passion. I think, you know, we have the solutions for living sustainably on this earth and growing food and, you know, living regeneratively. The big problem is it, it is people. <laughs> um, and permaculture in a way is really, um, it's focused on humans um, and how we can create um, lives and cultures that are back in line with nature. And I think because of that, there has to be such a big focus on how we organize and interact with each other and communicate with each other and how we govern ourselves and, and all of our, how we, you know, trade and have money in our economic systems. Like those are such a big part of it also. Um, permaculture isn't just growing food. It's really like, how do we create resilient human cultures on earth? And I just think that social aspect of it is so huge. And that's why like I studied agriculture in school and there are so many different movements, whether it's regenerative farming or agroecology or, you know, all these different things. And permaculture resonated with me most because it had that social aspect um, and people aspect. And I just think like, we're never gonna have the world that we want if we don't put a huge emphasis on that. So that's been like a huge part of my passion and my work as well. So awesome. I think in in your talk and, and some of your posts as well, you're hitting something so important. And it's you, you talk about that capitalism and colonialism are, are the reason for climate change. Um, and we've alluded to this so often on the podcast that the term sort of carbon footprint is a term that was used to shift blame to consumers. But it is the capitalism and, and colonialism that is really to blame in, in that sort of scenario, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And I think so many of, you know, we often will kind of try to tackle the symptoms, but if we don't look at these root problems like capitalism and colonialism and white supremacy and patriarchy and all those, like we're never really going to make lasting change, um, which is, again, it's super daunting. And it's like, how do we end capitalism? I don't know. I don't have the answers, but I think if we can name the problems at least, or like really just like identify them in a clear way, that's like the first step. Um, yeah, I think it's really important to, to name them, identify them. Yeah, wicked. I think that's so so well said. That's something we on a podcast just want to address as well. It's just like this is a space for like everyone. And like I think we luckily as growers, we we've not come from a growing background as well. So we don't have any dogma. And going forward, I'm I'm loving it. It's like a a new mycelium network of people going out trying to make change and I'm loving it. So it's, it's really cool to hear your view on that, Liz. Can you hear me all right, by the way? Yeah, yeah, I'm okay. Yeah, cool. No, it's just, I think it's coming out of my headphones and not my speaker for once. Um, we often centre on the part of permaculture in this podcast that refers to growing, uh, but it's a full system that includes like people, fair share, uh, but a full system is something that seems really passionate for you. And uh, I absolutely love that. And I think we address that when you come to the UK as well. Um, 
yeah, so just want to get a bit more of your view on that for it, like everyone getting into permaculture. Yeah, for sure. Part of my motivation in, in helping start Liberation Permaculture and part of our work is just noticing like a lot of the permaculture courses I was involved with are, are really homogenous, is in they're mostly affluent white people from the global north. And being in Costa Rica, it's like, why aren't locals here having access to the same information um, who would love to learn about it and be involved? But kind of the, the nature of it is oftentimes these are $2,000 courses um, where mm -hmm. people are flying from all over the world to participate them, in them. And again, most people looking the same here. So just starting to hear from that, like realizing that so many local people in the community here don't have access to it. And then likewise, in kind of the greater food justice community, there were, I don't know if you're familiar with Leah Penniman, um, but she wrote the book Farming While Black, and she's a really amazing food justice advocate. And her and some others were kind of starting to critique permaculture, just calling it kind of this like white savior movement um, that was just a bunch of white dudes rebranding indigenous knowledge um, to sell courses. And that really hit hard because it's a movement that I feel so like I really identify with and feel strongly about. And when I heard that, I was like, wait, because part of it, I really like, I'm like, you're kind of right. But then part of it to me was like, no, the permaculture movement that I've seen is really diverse and incredible. And, and I don't totally agree with that. So I kind of started reaching out to a lot of colleagues and friends in the space. And we just wanted to put a real effort forth to show that um, permaculture is this intersectional, diverse, amazing um, space. And there's so many people all over the world doing it, even if the voices are definitely not always equally shared. Um, but yeah, that, I, don't, I don't know if that touches on that. It, it does. And I've always, like, even when I'm reading permaculture, like, uh, sometimes I think that it was almost wrapped up, like indigenous knowledge wrapped up in a Western wording. Um, but it should always be accredit accredited to these indigenous people. Like, sure. uh, and the thing is, that this is the. Uh, but I've always felt that it has been the solutions to the problems we have. We it, we can fix it, and it's just getting that knowledge in a fair way to everybody. Um, yeah. Whether that's like relearning for some people, uh, some communities, um, old indigenous ways. Um, but also, as you said, like those courses are super expensive. Um, so hopefully even just having conversations about permaculture and even buying a couple of books is a cheaper way. But obviously we've seen the benefit of doing the courses. I just think for like both of us and why I think the course at Pincatiera is also so unique and had a big effect on my introduction to the permaculture world is Anna. Um, she used to be a lawyer for indigenous rights in Costa Rican Congress and basically spent all of her 20s traveling around Costa Rica, spending time with the different um, indigenous groups. And she's amazing and just has so much knowledge and connections in that way. So she makes that a really big emphasis in their course. And you actually spend a whole day with a local Quebec man, which is one of the indigenous groups here, learning from him and about his lifestyle. So they put a really big emphasis on it in the course and having that be my introduction to permaculture, I just kind of assumed that everyone did that. Um, and since learning, unfortunately, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. We're just kind of, I guess, trying to make more people, um, yeah, honor um, and acknowledge indigenous rights in the, in the way that they should. Yeah, totally. Oh, I, that was one day of the course that 
got rained off. I was gutted. Oh, oh you no. missed it. <laughs> yeah. So very, very jealous. We'll have but to come back. <laughs> yeah, I know. that. I think that door is always open as well. Uh, it's such an amazing place. I've, I always felt like there was so much more to learn. Um, I did. It was for me, I learned as much in the two week course than I had in like years of school. It just felt like a huge. Oh, down- absolutely. It was a huge download. It was a huge download. And, and I think you're in the environment. So you're in the jungle, which already is just like heightening all the senses anyway. But you're, you, I feel like I was a sponge there, e- even because you're not separating the day from like not doing permaculture to permaculture. It's like you're immersed in it. So when you go to the shower, um, you're having like, a shower that's like been built in the middle of the jungle it has hot water through like a off grip yeah yeah, composting system which i bang on about to everyone that will listen (laughs) about it um i just really like that the hawaiian ginger is placed outside the shower so you could use it for like a shampoo um yeah it what other nuance what other nuances was there on the farm that you can remember for me it was like all the huts were made out of bamboo that was like sourced either there or down the road. I mean, Anna and Ian, both of their backgrounds, I think are huge. So Ian was an artist, um, an architect growing up. And I think you can see that so much in the farm is it's just like, it's beautiful there. Every plant is placed like so thoughtfully. And I feel like every little thing is a piece of art. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, all of their systems, the passive heating and cooling, um, all the bamboo building and wood structures that they have are incredible. The compost heating for the showers, um, just the way that they, that they grow food is like, and the gardens are set up and the medicinal herb patches. Um, it's all just really, really thoughtfully done. It's, it's incredible for sure. Uh, and also uh, one more thing that I remembered like vividly was the peanut grass as well. Mm-hmm. And that was, yeah. In the park. So they replaced that- all, yeah, all of the ground cover on the entire farm, which is like a nine or 10 acre farm. They replaced with peanut grass, which, which is a nitrogen fixing ground cover. And it also, I mean, not only does it do amazing things for the soil, but it also just makes it look so beautiful um and it has all these little um edible yellow flowers in it so it's it's a really nice touch for sure sounds beautiful i'm just sitting here jealous now so (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna be looking up prices for that and and booking my flight um something we read um on on your social media and stuff was that you're sort of focused on a, a regenerative and sustainable diet choices now we'd love to hear a bit more about that and and any advice for people that are trying to move to that direction Mm-hmm. I definitely think and advocate for like eating local as much as you can first, um, whether that means, you know, the most local is growing your own in your own garden or windowsill or whatever that means to you. But then second, if you can support your local food system in your town or community, buying at the farmer's market, I think is like such an impactful thing. I really try and I realize I'm very privileged in this, but I try to stay away from the grocery store as much as possible. Like I really try to just go to the market or, or buy from, from farmers or friends or neighbors here. But I think really creating that community um, resilience and community food system is just so important when talking about a regenerative diet. Um, I also eat a plant-based lifestyle. I don't necessarily think that that's, I think that there are ways that you can eat animal products that are 
regenerative and you know good for the earth and others i just um choose to do that personally and and where i am i think it makes the most sense but definitely um if your only um meat sources or animal product sources are kind of imported things from industrial agriculture i think removing them is, is one of the most impactful things you can do as well yeah amazing totally resonate with that completely resonate i mean as you said like we're in a lucky bit well we grow a lot of our food and it is just i think small changes make a massive difference Mm -hmm. Uh, so anyone listening even if you are in a flat in the middle of the city that small growing change or that choice to go to the market over the supermarket um, or just know what's in season as well Mm. it's quite a big thing I think that's something that's super powerful is that you're doing that on a commercial level. You're doing that as a restaurant and as a cafe and to show that, I mean, we work with chefs here and they say, okay, well, we'll buy this from you, but we can't afford to buy this from you or we can't, we can't get that in. Oh, people, people want their, um, their sprouts on their roast dinner on in the middle of summer. That's just what people want. So they've always got loads of excuses, but, but you, you aren't, in that position you're showing that you can do that at at a restaurant level yeah and a huge part of it is again just changing like it's getting out of our comfort zones like so many people might just especially with food and culture be used to certain things like a really big not necessarily problem but challenge we've had is kind of avoiding rice and beans which is a staple of latin american (laughs) culture and diet and especially in costa rica like rice and beans are our breakfast lunch and dinner and you know, we respect that and love that, but those things are two things that are imported and don't grow here. So we've really been trying to remake um, more typical Costa Rican dishes, but just using different staple grains and starches from the area and just really getting creative with it. Um, and people love it. Like it, we've gotten amazing feedback. So it, it's, it's showed that um, I think people are really open to changing things if you can do it in a creative and delicious way. But yeah, I'm definitely, with eating local, a big part of it is just letting go of what what we're used to. I mean, I think so many people in temperate climates, like I used to drink a smoothie with bananas every day in the morning, like, um, <laughs> and realizing like buying bananas in New York all year round isn't necessarily the best thing in the world. Um, so just seeing how you can swap little things in your diet. I don't think overnight you have to, you know, completely only be eating potatoes and cabbage or I don't know what's around <laughs> in the world right yeah. now. Um, but just as much as you can trying to, to move towards seasonal and local and away from those things that are from across the world. And has that been, I guess that's been a real unique selling point for your restaurant then really that's, that's been part of the success. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Our, our food is definitely, um, very unique and we're cooking. I mean, that's a big part of it. Like my background in, um, agroecology and specifically like tropical agriculture agroecology is what has made the menu really unique so um yeah it's been it's been really cool and fun playing with things and and having people leave happy it's been great (laughs) knowing um you from the past as well elizabeth um you ran the eco warrior retreats um can you tell us a bit about those and would i be coming back now you're like uh, based in costa rica Yeah, so previous to COVID, I was hosting retreats. Um, They were called eco-warrior retreats, and they were kind of, I would describe it as somewhere in between like a course and a retreat in that it would be for someone who might not be ready to do a full immersive two-week permaculture course, but they want to 
be introduced to the lifestyle, kind of have that same inspiration, have that same community building aspect where they're meeting other people who who have the same interests and passions as them. And so they were week-long retreats at a family farm in Costa Rica um, in the Central Valley, which is a farm that um, I first volunteered on when I, ever, when I first came here. And it's a really incredible permaculture farm. Um, and the retreats were amazing. They were like so like beautiful and, and really rewarding and like made so many close friends. Um, still in touch with kind of everyone who came through them till today and the feedback was really great. We had to put them on hold um, from COVID and still have not started again. And it's definitely something that's in the back of my mind. I think, of course, the restaurant now is kind of taking over 99% of my capacity, but um, it, it's definitely something I, I want to continue doing in the future. I think being able to, like, I love doing activism online and kind of trying to educate and share online as much as I can, but you really can't compare it to being in person with people. Um, so it's a huge passion of mine and definitely will be doing it again in the future. When exactly? I don't know. Um, maybe mid to end of this year but it's kind of i feel like the world is still definitely challenging and weird travel wise especially international travel with everything going on so we want to like respect that family and local community as much as possible um while knowing that a lot of people still want to come and be able to experience that so i will let you all know when they're back for sure <laughs> so how has the tourism been as well to like have you noticed any tourists still coming through where you are or because I'm sure, I'm sure Costa Rica is still quite accessible out of most countries. Um, so have you seen like a not, yeah. um, have you seen like a, a spike in tourism or is it just been uh, a lot lower since the vid? We don't like to say that word. Yeah, I mean, definitely for, definitely for a solid year after the pandemic started and especially the first six months I mean it was totally dead here like mm. I mean in some ways everyone who lived here kind of loved it because there were no tourists and all, all the rent was super cheap and you would just go to the beach and there'd be like no one and everyone would just have bonfires every night because no one had to work but also definitely put a lot of people in very stressful financial situations but I'd say since like the beginning of 2021 um tourism has definitely come back um pretty well and like you said i think since costa rica doesn't really have really um heavy restrictions i think it's put um it's it's definitely shaped why tourism is still here um and the there's been just a huge spike in like digital nomads type mm -hmm. people moving here which i don't really feel like existed that much anymore um and you know with everything it has its pros and cons like it brings business and money to the area but it's also meant that like rent has spiked dramatically and a lot of people who actually live here can't like find homes anymore that aren't double the price of what they used to be um so i don't know development here is is always moving along i think it kind of just depends how how people go about it but no there's a there's definitely a lot of people here right now for sure <laughs> that's good uh, what's coming up for you this year then is it all restaurant 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 or is there some more exciting things we can look out for as well hope not i hope <laughs> um de i mean definitely the next few months will be restaurant restaurant but i mean a big part of it is we're hoping to do you know i don't i don't dream of being a restaurateur neither i'm i've uh, started it with a friend. I don't think either of us do, but in a lot of ways, the restaurant is kind of a means to an end 
of a lot of the things I was talking about, like inspiring people to eat locally and supporting local farmers. And we really eventually, once we get a little more um, acquainted, we want to start holding more events and workshops here and really have it be kind of a community space where people can come and gather and share. So that'll be a big part of my focus the first half of the year. And then, um, yeah, I mean, I'm still, again, the retreats are in the back of my mind as well as different permaculture courses facilitating in them um, and still being trying to be as active as possible in kind of the global permaculture movement with liberation permaculture and everything so definitely have a full plate but looking forward to it all <laughs> what's that we haven't said it what's the name of the restaurant so people can find you it's called biriba it's b-i-r-i-b-a it's the name of a fruit that grows here um, oh. the scientific name is rolinia delicosa it's like a spiky yellow fruit people call it the lemon custard sorry yeah lemon pie or lemon meringue fruit <laughs> um and it's native to i believe the brazilian amazon but in costa rica it only grows in the caribbean so uh, cool. yeah it's, it's a really cool fruit awesome <laughs> like like most fruit there is is insane it's just i remember like the uh the apple the really shiny apples um yeah, manzana de agua. Yeah, maybe water yeah, apple. Yeah, yeah, water. yeah. <laughs> Just some crazy like as, as you said earlier about the breadfruit. I mean, one of those. I mean, dinner is sorted for a, a long time. Like really hard carbohydrates. Um, and no, being here, I like I, I think so many people in the permaculture world, especially in the tropics, are just like ultra fruit nerds, mm -hmm. uh, and it's amazing. And I feel like even after all these years of thinking that I've learned about every obscure rare fruit in the world like I still discover a new one like almost weekly here it's like really amazing just the abundance and the diversity it's 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 insane yeah awesome so before before you go uh Liz we like to finish the podcast with a quick fire questions so we're just going to ask you five questions and then just yeah just say whatever comes to mind <laughs> so we're going to lean towards the growing side of it. Um, and we normally ask, what's your favorite tool? Uh, for sure, machete. <laughs> <laughs> Great choice. <laughs> Necessary in the tropics, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be attached to you all the time, having a machete, which I, I, find, I find pretty cool. But uh, when you first go to a farm in Costa Rica, you're like, damn, everyone's got machete. You just... <laughs> Be like wolf, but um. <laughs> the next one is what's your favorite growing hack? Ooh, my favorite growing hack. I mean, this really isn't a hack, but more just like a a tool that's used. Is I'm a pretty big fan of Google Culture. Um, I think, and and one thing that I've I've done at some farms here, and they do at Finca Tierra, is rather than putting the wood under the beds, um, they actually put it in the pathways. So the roots of the plants over long periods of time stretch out um, and get that nutrients over a really long period of time. And I think it's just a really cool, cool way of growing. That's really that's interesting. Awesome. I, I don't. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's really cool because it's just going to be a great slow release. And I think that's the idea of it in the bed. But the fact that the roots are going to yes. breach the bed, extra nutrition eventually. So we, we've got a new question that we've we've just added to our like quick fire <laughs> questions, and you you can have like time to think. We we can edit it, <laughs> but it's like what's your, what, nervous. What's your most embarrassing growing story? Like anything linked to the garden that you've done that is just like 
I'm just going to give you an example. Like I've walked into two rakes okay. at a farm within the last <laughs> three years. Um, yeah, so there's always things yeah. like that. I'm like, I'm so glad I work on my own. Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, working in the tropics where our soil is almost 100% clay, like you can literally take it and put it in a kiln and make a, a plate or pot out of it. I mean, I, I fall constantly. Definitely not used to that, especially on the slopes here. But I don't know if I have like a specific... Let me think for a moment. I mean, I'm sure I have many embarrassing stories, but one that, <laughs> that stands out. Um, let me think. I mean, in the theme of just kind of like unfortunate things, definitely working with animals. I think you can often <laughs> at times have like mishaps and just like letting animals out accidentally, having to run around and chase chickens or ducks and scoop them up. Um, I've definitely done that a handful of times. Um, yeah, I don't know if I have like a great embarrassing story that I can make <laughs> <right> now. <laughs> Are there any um, things that you grow that everyone likes but you don't like? Um, I'm definitely not a super picky eater, but lately, which is shocking because I used to love it, papaya has not been my favorite, but I think that's because I ate it every day for like five years that I'm just like a little bit over it. But in general, I, I really love most fruits and things that grow here. Awesome. Just before we go to the last question, uh, do you, have you ever had that jackass bitter? The... Did they yeah, yeah, for sure. Right, that is on another yeah. level of bad for me. I, oh, I, yeah. I couldn't deal with it's it. It's kind of my favorite. Really? My favorite thing is seeing people's reactions oh, when right. they eat it the first time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I do not eat it often. But, you know, Ian still eats it every single day. I mean, it's super good for you. Anything bitter is really, really yeah. good for you. And, and for me, that was like making me heave. The bitterness was off the charts. And it was kind of furry, if I remember. Yeah. It's really unpleasant in all ways. <laughs> You're not but selling it. <laughs> so we normally end, end the podcast and we always say like, what's, what's your favorite part of um, being on the farm? Is it a morning coffee or an afternoon beer, wine? Um, it's not necessarily a specific time of day or thing, but I think like I used to run cross country when I was younger and when you're running and you kind of forget that you're running and you're just like in that blissed out moment. I think to me, farming can be the same. Like when you're just doing one thing over and you kind of forget that you're doing it and you're so in the zone and then you look up and like realize. And for me, like I love this climate so much that that'll happen where I'm just doing one thing, whether it's like weeding or transplanting something and I'm so in it. And then all of a sudden you just have a moment where you look up and there's like beautiful jungle or monkeys running by and you're kind of just like alone there. I think those moments are always really special and they never get old. So, Did, so is it morning coffee or afternoon beer? <laughs> afternoon beer, for sure. Sweet, <laughs> sweet, sweet. Yeah, we've got a little bit of a tally going on. Uh, so that each guest we have to ask. We're, we're, I mean, at the minute, was it a draw, Chris? It was in the first series. This series is leaning very much afternoon beer. Wow. We're obviously picking people that are on our wavelength. <laughs> No, thanks so much for coming on, Liz. Like, it's really good yeah, to get your perspective you. and also to talk to a, someone who's growing in like a completely different environment and also to when we can all 
hopefully see each other again around the world. Oh, um, come visit anytime. <laughs> yeah. And, and also just for more people to know what an awesome country Costa Rica is and the sustainability factor. And if you can go on a permaculture course, Finca Tierra's the place or anything you've got coming up is also going to be amazing. Thank you. Where can people go to find you online? Um, on Instagram, it's at Elizabeth Kaus, C-O-U-S-E underscore. Um, and that's the main place. But two, two projects I have are Liberation Permaculture, also on pretty much all social media. And then my newest project, The Restaurant, which is Beriba Cocles. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time. It's been amazing. Thanks, guys. Bye. huge thank you to elizabeth for recording this episode with us it was fantastic and a huge thank you to our sponsors as well natural grower and direct plants limited you can find more about them and all the stuff we do at foodgrower.co.uk see you on the next one <laughs>